Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today we have a PhD candidate from the University of Connecticut, Alec Weitzel, and uh, he studies the environmental impacts of colonization and um, in the Americas, specifically southern New England. He'll, you know, detail exactly what he does. I just want to start off the episode with a little caveat. I think, I think the best thing we can do when we make mistakes is to just be transparent about them because it kind of takes away any like negative connotation with mistake. And you'll hear like the beginning of the episode start out with me saying like, oh, oh, I finally got it, like his name pronunciation. So as I mentioned, like last week I was sick. And again, this is not an excuse. Like I was messing up the pronunciation of his name. It was embarrassing. It was quite a few times in a row. And he was so kind and just telling me, you know, how to pronounce it so that we'd have it right for the episode. And I was just on it. I was mortified, mortified because for whatever reason, I think it was like the emphasis of the E and the I, I was just, I was switching them around. I was saying the name, but with a different emphasis on different letters. And he was kind of sitting there like, it's okay. It's okay. It's a difficult name. And I was like, no, I want people to know when someone's mispronouncing your name that you don't need to sit and make um, apologies for yourself. It's 100% on the person who is mispronouncing your name, which in this case was me. Uh, people mispronounce my name. I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. So I really understand uh, the importance of making sure you pronounce someone's name correctly, which is why I always go over it with my guests before we start recording. But I also, again, I just wanted to be transparent and say, if you're in that situation and someone's mispronouncing your name, don't ever make excuses. Don't say, oh, it's difficult. Oh, whatever. You know, my parents gave me a difficult name. Please don't ever feel the need to do that. Like it's on the person who's mispronouncing your name. And in that case, it was me. But Alec and I still had a lovely chat and he was really understanding. He has really important things to say throughout this episode and is just a really passionate person. You can tell that there's a lot of thought that goes into every statement that he makes and I personally was really fascinated by the type of research he does. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Thank you everyone for joining us this week. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Alec Weitzel. I got it, I think. A PhD candidate in the anthropology department at the University of Connecticut, and you're using an archaeological approach to studying the environmental changes and impacts that have occurred um, throughout Native American groups. And I think it's really fascinating to, you know, talk about the environment as anthropologists. It's something that I really enjoy, especially like given given everything that's going on with our climate crisis. I think anthropology is a really, really 
powerful tool to examine the environment. So honestly, like I'm so excited to learn from you today. This is definitely a topic I don't know as much about. So it'll be, you're educating me just as you're educating the listeners. And um, so you kind of describe yourself as a human ecologist and archaeologist that's interested in how humans adapt to and modify their environments. Now, I'm curious, when did this interest in human interactions begin? Was it at a young age or was it kind of a um, developed in your academic studies? Mm, yeah, so it's absolutely dates back to um when I was a child, uh, you know, I've wanted to be an archaeologist since I think sixth grade, probably. Um, that's been, you know, my goal in life. Uh, but even before that, I've been interested in, you know, natural history, the environment, ecology, all things like that. Um, you know, my dad is a hunter and outdoorsman and that sort of thing. So I grew up in the woods with him. Uh, I grew up, I mean, I'm watching Steve Irwin and these other wildlife shows on Animal Planet in the late 90s. Um, And so there's always been that kind of aspect to the things I'm interested in. And then when I became interested in archaeology, because I was always interested in history as a child, I think, but then I realized archaeology was a thing at some point. Um, And from sixth grade on, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so I actually think it's a pretty natural kind of consequence of my childhood yeah. that I, uh, I'm an archaeologist who studies, you know, human ecology in the past. Mm-hmm. And where was that that you grew up? I'm from Pennsylvania originally. Oh, nice. Yeah. Gosh, Pennsylvania is so beautiful. I have toured, I did like right before undergrad, I went and visited Penn State and then I just went and was there visiting Mercyhurst. Yeah. Um, gosh, I just, and both of the times were during the fall. So I got to see the beautiful foliage, which, Mm. you know, as someone from the West coast, I just, oh, I love it so much. Like it it just makes (laughs) me feel like I'm in a movie and just so, so peaceful. Um, did you, yeah. What did you enjoy most about growing up in Pennsylvania? (laughs) At the time, probably not much, um, but (laughs) retrospectively, um, You know, it's, uh, well, I mean, in terms of, you know, natural beauty and all that kind of thing, I mean, uh, the halfway point of the Appalachian Trail was, you know, literally 20 minutes from my house. Um, So I grew up in a small town um, in South Central Pennsylvania, but, you know, was hiking in the Appalachian Mountains my whole life, um, you know, doing little sections of the AT uh, here and there. And so there's always, you know, fascinating you know trails to hike and places to explore and that kind of thing that was always a a fun part of growing up in Pennsylvania that's awesome yeah um so I'm kind of curious you know throughout your academic journey have there been any experiences that you can kind of pinpoint that have been like turning points or you know inspirational moments I know I have had so many times where it just feels like if this one thing didn't happen, I'd be on a completely different path. And I think it's really reassuring for people to hear that sometimes things just happen like through serendipity and uh, through, I mean, hard work also, but sometimes things are just, you know, up to chance. So I'm going to turn it over to you and just kind of like what has been inspiring throughout your journey to keep you going? Mm, Yeah. I mean, there've been a lot of, uh, serendipitous occurrences that have kind of led me to where I am now probably the biggest one might be um so when I first got to college you know my first semester freshman year um at Dickinson College which is in my hometown in Pennsylvania actually 
Um, but I took uh, the very first class I signed up for actually was a fir first year seminar course on hunter gatherers um, in both archaeology and, you know, ethnographically. And the main text that we used in that class was a book on the Hadza um, hunter gatherer group from Tanzania written by Frank Marlowe. Um, and that book and the, you know, the class itself, the professor who taught the class, everything about it um, really was a big turning point for me. Um, as I said, you know, I always wanted to do archaeology since I was in sixth grade. Um, but when I got to college and I took this class and I read this book on the Hadza, um, that was kind of a shift for me. I kind of had a better idea now of what I wanted to do. And specifically, it was because... Um, that book, you know, used a certain theoretical approach. Um, you could say, I mean, Frank Marlowe and his approach to studying the Hadza is very much grounded in uh, behavioral ecology. So it's this explicitly, you know, adaptive and evolutionary approach and ecological approach to studying human behavior. And that, you know, reading that and understanding now that you could actually study people uh, in this way just made so much sense to me. Um, and I've been doing, you know, behavioral ecology, technically speaking, ever since. I mean, that's the sort of specific theoretical paradigm that I operate under. And so that reading Frank Marlowe's Hadza book was really uh, probably the most influential you know, moment in my academic career thus far, um, even though there have probably been several others since then. That's awesome. And I actually am glad you brought that up because I, uh, I love talking about like specific pieces of literature that people, um, you know, that are listening can also read. So I'm glad you brought that up. I always think it's super fun to turn people on to, to new authors, new uh, types of literature, you know, behavioral yeah. ecology is again, something that I just don't have experience in, but is so, it's, you're right. It's such an interesting paradigm to look at the world with and to really like examine the questions that you want to examine. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious how, you know, throughout your graduate career, you settled on um, pursuing archaeological questions in North America. Was that, again, was that coincidental or was it just like a real um, desire to kind of learn about where you live. I think for some people that that's what it comes down to is wanting to understand the environment in which they grew up. Yeah, it's, you know, it's all of those things really. Um, you know, since I did want to be an archeologist from such a young age, you know, I had the same conception of archeology span as probably a lot of the, the general population out there where, you know, it's ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, you know, you've got the Maya, the Aztec, the Inca, and then, you know, maybe some human evolution stuff going on in Africa yeah. and Stone Age things there. That's archaeology in a nutshell. That's, you know, what most people think about. Um, maybe some other, you know, Asian civilizations, but that's the gist of it. And so until I really got to college, I didn't um, fully appreciate the breadth of archaeology. Um, I, uh, you know, I think at the time that I was a freshman, I was thinking maybe, you know, something human evolution related would be what I would go into. You know, I was interested in hunter gatherers and stone tools and, you know, paleoanthropology and that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't have a firm sense of that. And it was really during my kind of first year of college that I started, you know, learning really about, you know, all these different sides of archaeology that I never fully understood or appreciated. Um, I had one really influential professor, uh, Sarah Sherwood at the time, who really, you know, she was a North American archaeologist, a really great geo-archaeologist. Um, and I ended up, you know, doing my field school with her 
after the summer after my freshman year. And that was the thing that really sealed the deal for me. You know, I, uh, at Dickinson College, where I was going to school, the two options for field schools, which is, you know, what you have to do to become an archaeologist, basically, um, the two options were uh, excavating in Greece at this very famous, you know, Bronze Age palace at Mycenae. Or I was going to say, is it Mycenae? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Mycenae. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, I took a lot of classes on Bronze Age Greek archaeology when I was an undergrad, and I've forgotten most of it. But that was, you know, <laughs> all, all of my friends, basically, um, they yeah. all went and they dug at Mycenae. And so that was my, you know, the main option that I had for a field school. But then Sarah Sherwood had gotten to Dickinson the year prior, and started running a field school for us down in Tennessee, um, which was, uh, you know, certainly not Greece. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know, as a you know somebody who didn't come from a lot of money, and the cost of attending a field school in Greece was going to be you know huge. I think yeah. all said and done, you know, with the flights included, you're talking like six thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and I just was not going to be able to afford that because it wasn't covered by my scholarships that I got to go to Dickinson or anything. But the Tennessee field school was like two thousand dollars. We slept in tents for six weeks, <laughs> and so that's what I ended up doing. You know, I, I ended up just going to Tennessee. Um, and taking this field school with Sarah Sherwood because it was the cheaper option fundamentally. But when I got down there and, you know, after my first year of college and then that field school opportunity in the summer, uh, I just suddenly realized, you know, archaeology is fascinating no matter where it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And specifically, you know, North American archaeology, it was definitely one of those things where, uh, a lot of people say this, but, you know, you never hear about this in school or something like that. Um, I grew up, you know, in North America, yeah. learning about the history of this you know, country, this continent. And you never really hear about places like Cahokia or something where you've got these massive earthen structures, these mounds and, you know, thousands upon thousands of people were potentially living there. Um, you never really hear about that all that often. And so that really blew my mind. Um, and then, you know, doing archaeology in Tennessee for that six weeks in the summer um, definitely sealed the deal. And I started, you know, viewing myself as a, a North American archaeologist. Um, and at the same time, you know, realizing that, as I said, archaeology is interesting everywhere, no matter where you're at. And so that also made me a bit agnostic towards, you know, geographically where exactly you're doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so even right now, you know, as I'm concluding my PhD, my dissertation is, you know, about Eastern North America. Um, but I've actually been doing field work in Kosovo and Europe for the past couple of summers. Yeah. And so you can, you know, there's archaeology everywhere and it's all pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That is really awesome. What particularly, like what started that opportunity to go uh, do the work in Kosovo? Is it related to your dissertation or is it like a side project? Totally unrelated. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, interestingly, it's actually because my fiance is, um, Albanian American. Her father's from, uh, Montenegro technically, but he's ethnically Albanian. And so, you know, from dating and, you know, getting engaged to my fiance, all these years we've been together, I've heard a lot about Albania, Albanian culture, Albanian history, um, because a lot of Albanians are very, you know, proud of their heritage, and really, a lot of them pay attention to a lot of this archaeological stuff. That's and so, I just, cool. yeah, from hearing about, I mean, yeah, it's the Balkans, so there's a lot of this historical thing that really matters for the current political situation too. Um, but just from hearing all about this, I started reading about Albania and Albanian archaeology, uh, and I was looking up projects over there. And there was one American archaeologist who kept popping up, um, Mike Galati. Um, 
who had done a couple of field projects in Albania. And then I saw, I just coincidentally, as I was Googling all of this, I figured out that he was starting a new project up in Kosovo um, and just completely cold emailed him and said, hey, are you going to take volunteers? He said, yeah. And I ended up uh, out there for, you know, my first field season outside of North America, which was really cool and a great experience. And it's something that I've been going back to and hopefully we'll go back to again in the future. Yeah. Let's scream it to the people in the back. Cold emails work. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I've been ignored by, <laughs> I mean, big names in the field, like sure. trying to get people on the podcast, but do you want to know how I get anyone on the podcast? Cold emails. Literally exactly. that, that, that is how. So I think it's a good thing for, especially someone who may like just be starting their career in anthropology to remember that. I mean, of course, be polite, you know, be a uh, professional, but yeah it's never going to hurt the, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get ignored. And let me yeah. tell you, it's all right. You can brush it off. It's not a real ego hit. It's just a, like, it's a short one. Um. Exactly. Yeah. Don't be afraid to cold email these people. It's how things get done. And oftentimes mm-hmm. they're very, you know, kind. And you know, yes. I mean, that first field season, you know, Mike flew me out there and put me up room and board and everything like very generous um, yeah. of him to do that. So give it a shot. Yeah. It's worth it. I think it's, that's also um, something that I, and actually something I plan to do because I also did my first, my, well, my only field school after my freshman year. So I then plan to ask if um, field projects needed volunteers, because that lots of times after you have that initial like training school experience under your belt, um, archaeologists or, you know, um, field advisors are more willing to have you come on volunteer, maybe advise other like undergrad students. Uh, And like you said, normally like lots of times they'll um, either say, okay, you're not going to get paid, but we'll take care of all your room and board. Or they'll say like, you need to fly out and then we'll pay you X stipend or whatever. So yeah, that's actually really common practice. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that we haven't talked about in the field school. And it's a really good thing for people, especially now. Well, hopefully the pandemic kind of like allows it. I know it's a bit easier, like where you're living, but in California, it's been like, there have been no opportunities just because Mm -hmm. of COVID regulations. Um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no volunteer. I mean, volunteers are always desirable on archeological sites. We always need more hands. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, pretty, I don't know. Somebody just asked me a couple of weeks ago if they could volunteer on an archeological site. They're, you know, 50 something years old. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Just email somebody and odds yeah. are they'll take you. Mm-hmm. We, we need, I we need help. That. Yes, <laughs> I know. Help is needed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so switching topics a little bit back to your dissertation, could yeah. you just kind of detail the nuances of your dissertation ugh, dissertation research and the field work that's kind of encompassed in it? And then we can, add, let's do separate question. We can kind of talk about your overarching goals for, for your dissertation and beyond. Sure. So yeah, my dissertation um, is basically about um, the ecological consequences of European colonization, uh, specifically in Southern New England. Um, and this is something that a lot of people have talked about in the past, but, you know, as Europeans are colonizing North America and the Western Hemisphere generally, the world generally, um, there's all sorts of environmental shifts that are happening as a direct consequence of that. Um, and so specifically what I'm looking at is how uh, prior to European colonization, uh, Native Americans are, you know, managing their environment in all sorts of fascinating ways. 
Um, and this is something that's happening, you know, across North America and South America that you've got, you know, controlled burning of forests, you've got, you know, clearing of the landscape, all these different management strategies are going on. Um, and then Europeans show up and within, you know, a generation or two, you've got massive mortality from epidemic disease. You've got, you know, colonial warfare, you've got outright acts of genocide, you know, the social economic marginalization of native peoples, all of these things um, just completely shifted the socioecology of North America at that time in that early colonial period. And then you've got Europeans, of course, introducing their own, you know, plants and animal species. Mm. They're managing their environment, their new environment in, you know, different ways, um, just as Native people are no longer managing the environment in the same way they once were. And so those kind of questions are what my dissertation is, uh, is all about in a general sense. That's so, so fascinating. I just started, um, so UCSB, we just started our quarter, um, I guess a week and a half ago and I'm taking California indigenous peoples. And in my textbook, we were reading about, um, how even just the mission fields, you know, they brought in their certain crops and the wind blow those seeds over past the fields and, you know, native peoples start, this again, this was before European colonizers crushed out the native um, life ways, which is what happened. Mm. And it's horrible. And every time I think about it, I just want to like scream. Yeah. But it is what happened. Um, that there was like that intermediate time of native peoples being introduced to these new, like quote unquote, like domesticated species. I think one of them was maybe like rye. And it, I just, it was so fascinating too, to think about that in between time, because there mm-hmm. was um, like, I mean, you know, you're studying it, but to me, to really <laughs> think about that as uh, as a powerful change and that there were lots of phases of native people's traditions kind of starting to change um, yeah. be either again, unintentionally just by the wind or intentionally by you know European colonizers has there been anything that's really surprised you in your research like something that maybe environmental um disease wise like I don't know anything that's just Mm. really kind of changed your perception that you went in with that's a really good question um I'm trying to think back, you know, years ago when I started working on this, what my, uh, you know, prior conceptions yeah. of all these things were and how that would have shifted. It's um, a fair point, though. You are quite, you know, you you're at the end stages of your PhD. <laughs> I've and been I think about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, you have. I mean, it's, uh, and, and I just want to also say, like, congratulations. Like, it's, you know, it is no, it is so hard to be a graduate student right now. And, mm. you know, it's it's hard. So congratulations. You're doing, you're doing the thing. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah. It's been, uh, interesting, you know, finishing up my data collection during a pandemic and Mm -hmm. all that. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of the things that probably surprised me the most. Um, I, I, maybe not surprised me the most, but the things that, um, have intrigued me or that I wasn't Mm. quite expecting were some of the really detailed descriptions that I've found in, you know, 17th century documents written Mm. by these European colonists. Um, You know, some of the things they're writing about um, are just exactly what I'm writing about, you know, all these centuries later. And so finding, you know, these guys from 
1640s, 1650s, whatever it was, um, describing the environment of New England as they're doing it. Um, and as all of these changes are occurring, it's really, you know, astounding that they're picking up on some of the things that I'm asking questions about. Um, you know, uh, a big part of my research is actually about um, reconstructing white-tailed deer populations. Mm. Um, so white-tailed deer, uh, you know, they live in very particular habitats. They like forest edges, that kind of boundary between forests and fields. And that's a really interesting habitat type, especially when you're talking about environmental modification, landscape management, burning of forests. You know, you're creating a lot of white-tailed deer habitat when you're managing a landscape. And so they're a useful proxy measure, I think, for some of these, you know, uh, environmental changes that happened in the early colonial period. But, you know, there's an account um, from, you know, the New York area by this Dutch guy um, around 1650, where he's talking about how the deer populations, well, he's talking to a Native American guy, and the Native guy is telling him about the deer populations, but saying, you know, before, you know, the white man showed up, before the Christians appeared in this area, deer populations were just huge, um, that they were killing more deer every year than even currently exist in the New York area. Wow. And so there's just, it just, and again, it might be, you know, slight exaggeration or something, but there's still this image of just that um, incredible abundance of white-tailed deer before European colonization and how even by 1650, which is only a couple decades after, you know, the Dutch and the English started kicking around in the region, um, that the deer population was already in decline. And that, you know, it speaks volumes. And of course, there's a lot of things as to why exactly that's the case. And that's what my dissertation is trying to tease apart. Um, mm -hmm. But just the fact that somebody described that and was talking to this, you know, native man who was old enough to remember, you know, decades ago before Europeans were there, what the situation was like and described that, you know, uh, deer population to this Dutch colonist. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of thing is just fascinating to me. That is really fascinating. And uh, it must just generally being able to read any of these old documents just be really fascinating. I mean, I think there are just so few people that have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, there are there are letters, records, you know, has a lot of that been like actual physical records or is it like online databases? Yeah, um, all of the documents that I've read are available online, okay. honestly, because they're written so long ago. It's all kind of, you know, on uh uh, these kind of university, you know, clearinghouse websites and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You can pull these documents and page through it. And somebody made a lot of them searchable too, which is a lifesaver. So you don't have to actually read all of the hundreds of pages, but yes. um, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely incredible to read this kind of stuff. Cause there's, and even, you know, if you do take the time to just sit and read some of these the whole way through, you pick up on things that you never would have, you know, expected to hear about. Um, you know, there's, uh, I was reading the letters of Roger Williams um, and just looking for references to, you know, deer or the forest ecology at the time, anything like that. But I came across, you know, a story of this guy who was originally from um, up in the Massachusetts Bay colonies who uh, ended up out in the Hartford area at a trading post, ended up marrying a native woman, having children with her. Um, ended up, you know, it's described as he basically turned Indian in the words of Roger Williams. He, you know, cut his hair in the native style, started wearing native clothes, lived with them, spoke their language, you know, gave up, um, you know, his kind of status as a white European 
Um, and just the way that, you know, Roger Williams is kind of freaking out about this and, you know, other people are also at the time kind of freaking out about this because it's not an isolated incident it might be one of the first cases of this, uh, you know, sort of thing, but just little, you know, snippets of, you know, yeah. people's lives in the past like that, that just pop up. And, and, you know, this guy's only mentioned in, you know, three or four letters of Roger Williams over the course of a couple of months and he disappears from the historical you know, memory. Um, but that kind of thing is just fascinating to encounter. Yeah. It makes me sad that children today are still learning the insanely biased history that we all learned. Like, <laughs> I just wish, yeah. I wish that like all the history books could just be writ- rewritten because it's just, it just is so insane. I mean, for example, yeah. and this is just... <laughs> atrocious until three years ago I did not know the real story behind Thanksgiving and that's sad that's horribly sad um yeah there's so many you know everything is mythologized to such a high degree especially when you're dealing with this early American history I mean Americans love their need to be that's the, the thing is it's like we have records like yes we do not have a comprehensive record of like indigenous people's like thoughts feelings at that time of course we don't but we do have some information that's more accurate that we could be teaching to the youth and it's just oh but you know what? Yeah. We'll get there. I have hope <laughs> that we're going to get there as a society. Yeah. Things are getting better. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. And so it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the history of the first Thanksgiving too. I mean, that's, I just actually published an article in scientific American about some of the ecology behind the first Thanksgiving. Yeah. We'll have that linked below. Exciting. Yeah, I need to read it. Means. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more white-tailed deer stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's it, anytime. And of course, then I went back and I read, as I was writing this article, I read some of these, you know, primary sources and what was described about the first Thanksgiving and what's really going on there. And yeah, it's just, it's not what I remember being taught when I was in grade school. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reality seems to have been quite a bit different. Mm-hmm. And of course, divorced from the entire context of colonialism, which, you know, a lot of people don't want to get into the weeds on, especially when they're teaching children. But Mm -hmm. at a certain point, you gotta. Yes, I think we have to. I mean, I, I, children, this, this generation of are dealing with quite a bit. I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. think that like bursting the bubble that their ancestors were uh, colonizers is, is the worst thing in the world. I'm going to have a, a parent of- like DM me and be like, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. A lot of kids these days seem to be realizing these things on their own too. Excellent point. Yeah. Yeah, especially the, yeah. Exposure to media and stuff. Yeah. Kids are all right. Yeah. Um, going back to your dissertation, what are some of uh, your overarching goals for this research and how you hope to either further it or, um, kind of bridge from it, you know, use similar approaches, similar data, you know, whatever, you know, how, what are, what do you see the future of your own research and your goals? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, most immediately I just need to finish the dissertation. Yes. <laughs> That's the main goal right now. Yeah. You know, I've got, I think I'm working on paper number two out of the four papers that I need to write. Cause we don't do a, a single monograph dissertation at UConn. Ooh. I have the yes. opportunity to write four actual you know, journal articles, which I think is a much better way to do it. I agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so, uh, you know, in terms of that, the specifically the future for me, I've got to finish, um, you know, running 
the statistics on a lot of these animal bones, these white-tailed deer bones that I've identified over the last year or so. Um, I'm going to be doing a bit of simulation modeling to try to understand how, you know, people might be modifying their environments in certain ways. I'm really interested in, you know, computational approaches in archaeology, uh, agent-based models and that kind of stuff. So that's something that I'm going to be playing around with. And then beyond the dissertation specifically, you know, I definitely want to keep working on these sorts of issues. I mean, I can expand out and study, you know, not just white-tailed deer, which is what I'm really focusing in on at the moment, but, you know, all sorts of other species, you know, like beaver. I mean, huge impacts, ecologically speaking, with beavers across, you know, European colonization. And so expanding out within New England and doing more of other species and things, I can expand to other regions, you know, go back to my roots in the southeast and look at what's going on with deer there. I mean, there's so much potential for, you know, broadening the scope of this research, um, and, you know, making it, it I, I don't know, I'm very interested in, you know, big picture stuff. I don't want to get yeah. too bogged down in the specifics of any one, you know, site or region, but um, just, I mean, because fundamentally what I'm asking questions about is, you know, ecosystem engineering, environmental modification, niche construction. I mean, these are huge issues um, in understanding anthropologically our species. You know, we're this, we have this like ultimate ability to modify our surroundings in profound ways, as we know from, you know, the Anthropocene and climate change and all these things. I mean, those are all the result of us having this propensity and ability um, to modify our surroundings. And just at a general theoretical level, I just wanna contribute more to that discussion. It's such a fascinating aspect of what it is to be human. Yeah. I think that's a really good goal going forward. I think you're definitely, um, you're definitely a very thoughtful scholar. I can tell (laughs) even just like from this brief interaction that you really care about all the aspects that contribute to your work. I think Mm -hmm. it's really important. I think it too often researchers can get bogged down in one specific little niche area. And I think especially like you were saying, ecosystems are a system and there's so much more that contributes to it than than one avenue or one affect you know sure and so yeah I'm really I'm really like I really want to read your piece because I I just (laughs) I'm really fascinated by the research and I think it's really cool um another yeah another thing that you did recent well I actually don't know if it was recently because I didn't look at the date on it but um you worked with sapiens and We've had mm-hmm. other people on here who've worked with Sapiens and just have like such great things to say about uh, the people there. So I hope yeah. honestly one day to work with them as well. Um, yeah. But the piece They're was great. entitled, yeah, the piece was entitled, Are Pandemics Good for the Environment? So kind of what was the goal of this piece? And I have a follow-up, but we'll, we'll do that after. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I wrote that article for Sapiens um, back in 2020 at some point. I don't remember when because time during a pandemic yeah. doesn't mean much. <laughs> I understand. But uh, yeah, you know, it was the early weeks and months of, you know, the COVID pandemic. And I'm just sitting in my apartment, procrastinating, analyzing white-tailed deer bones um, and thinking about how, you know, we're witnessing this historic moment of how our society and how our planet is going to respond to this global pandemic that we're dealing with. And of course, you know, I'm also acutely aware of the fact that that's also kind of what I'm studying for my dissertation, you know, with European colonization and the introduction of smallpox and all these other diseases, these epidemics just devastated uh, native communities across the Western hemisphere. 
And so I'm studying the ecological consequences of those pandemics, in a sense, at least as a part of this whole package of European colonialism. Um, and so as I'm you know, witnessing the pandemic going on and thinking about this historical pandemic that I'm researching, I figured that I should, I don't know, put some of my thoughts down on it and contribute to the uh, ridiculous yeah. quantity of uh, articles that people were putting out about COVID at the time and still are. Yeah. Um, and so, it yeah, I just, funny, though, <laughs> because it was also in pod, like uh, audio clip form. And so they yeah. ask you, they're like, are pandemics good for the environment? And you just go, no, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> how it starts out. I'm like, I mean, it's a good way for it to start out. People know what your argument's going to be going forward. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. I always want people to know what I'm going to say before yeah. I get into the weeds on it. That's the best way to, to communicate, I think. But yeah, no, that they interviewed me for their podcast and Chip asked me that to start off with. And yeah, yeah the answer is pretty straightforward and simple no and that's I mean that's the time you know early on in the pandemic everybody was seeing you know animals are wandering the streets of cities because people just aren't out there and there's all this discussion about how you know the planet is recovering the planet is healing maybe humans are the virus after all that kind of thing that's now that been phase. you know yeah it's like a lot of this has been memified at this point wow I um, remember that phase <laughs> I was one of those people I was like saying I was yeah. like maybe this is good I'm so far past that but yeah. wow I remember that like optimism when we thought maybe the world was healing yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe things will get better after this pandemic. it's not <laughs> probably not no I don't think so wow um and that's you know that interested me because you know everybody was having this discussion you know on social media and publishing things on it um and i mean sure you know positive environmental effects are, are theoretically possible after a pandemic you know and uh i mean even during covid you know we have seen you know reduced greenhouse gas emissions you know there's reductions in certain aspects of pollution and whatnot but on the other hand some things are also worse at the same time so it's possible for things to get better, but I think it's going to be temporary with this. Mm -hmm. And that's fundamentally what this article for Sapiens was about. Um, yeah. You know, the I reviewed, you know, some of my dissertation work with what I've been reading about these epidemics in the early colonial period in North America. I also threw in from stuff about, you know, 14th century Europe and the Black Death as a comparison point. Um, basically just talking about how, you know, sometimes it seems like good things can come from, you know, this kind of crisis. Um, but fundamentally, um, I don't think that's what's going to happen with our yeah. current pandemic. You know, it's uh, the way that, um, well, you know, I mean, the way the, the Black Death worked out, um, you know, you've got a third of Europe's population on average dead, you know, much higher mortality rates in specific places. Um, and after that, you know, there's huge social changes that are happening you know you've got a lot of these peasants revolts going on you've got shifts in you know wages and compensation for laborers um, a lot more you know bargaining power in a sense is going to the working class so to speak mm -hmm. at the time and all kind of hastening the downfall of feudalism and that like manner system that was so prevalent in medieval europe um, and so you know there's positive changes in a general sense there but also you know it's happening because a third of the population is dead yeah. um and you know at the same time you know then a couple hundred years after that in north america you've got these epidemics just absolutely you know potentially 90 something percent mortality in some of these native communities and we are seeing things you know in central america south america there's good evidence that there was um 
def or sorry, reforestation happening in the early colonial period, where these native communities are no longer farming on the same scale and intensity that they once were. And so these fields are being abandoned, the forests are regrowing. And that actually has, you know, the effect of creating a carbon sink, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. CO2 is being absorbed by those trees out of the atmosphere, and contributing potentially to a sort of global cooling of temperatures. And so that kind of thing, you know, nowadays, when we think about that, like, you know, wow, global cooling would yeah. be a nice change of pace. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, Wouldn't that be nice. Exactly. Um, but of course, you know, you crunch the numbers and even the scale of the reforestation that occurred after the death of 90 something percent of the Western Hemisphere's population wouldn't put a dent in what we're dealing with today. Yeah. And it's at the cost of all of that loss of life. And so it's just these, you know, some of these things seem like they could be good. But at the end of the mm -hmm. day, um, I basically I wrote that the changes that we're going to see from the COVID pandemic have to do with, you know, how people with social and political and economic power respond to these things. Yeah, you know, those with power economically will seize on any crisis um, and you know expand their wealth, expand their influence. I mean, we've seen you know all the stats on billionaires getting so much richer over the last yeah. you know year and a half. It's obscene. Jeff Bezos, right? Like while yeah. we're all struggling, he's just like flying to space for like shits and giggles. Yep. It's pretty like, ridiculous. Just, just for fun, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's going to really, it comes down to how people like that and really these corporations are going to respond to things. Because when you're talking about the environmental consequences of the pandemic, climate change, the Anthropocene, all of these you know issues that we're facing now, they're not for the most part, the result of the actions of people like you and me. They're the result of these big corporations doing huge, large-scale things. Yeah. And when those corporations are gaining more power, more influence over political systems and contributing further to our climate crisis, that's going to be the long-term legacy of this pandemic, I think, when mm -hmm. it comes to these environmental issues. We might see some short-term benefits in terms of greenhouse gas emission reductions, but Long term, it's going to be a consolidation of power among, you know, the capitalist class and things are going to get worse. What was the response like to that piece? You know, I think social media has kind of allowed us to engage more with with some form of an audience and or like research colleagues. You know, was there any kind of interaction you had with people after that piece? Um, yeah, it seemed like a generally you know, positive response. The, the feedback I got was pretty, you know, people certainly agreed with what I was saying. Um, and also, I mean, it was mostly just a review of what happened in the past. So it's hard to disagree with some of these things because they're just, you know, facts about the past. But um, the, I mean, the biggest complaint was simply that I wasn't very optimistic about the future, which, uh, yeah, it's, that's correct. I'm sorry to yes. say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you found that social media or the internet has allowed you to be more connected with other anthropologists during this time, you know, when we're all so disconnected? Yeah, it certainly has, um, you know, those sorts of benefits. Um, it's, you know, striking that balance between finding, you know, digital means of connection with other people and, you know, doom scrolling that kind of, you know, it's tough to, to navigate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've certainly started off the pandemic strong with, you know, social media and trying to talk to people and have these conversations and being on Twitter and all this stuff. And at this point now I've, you know, 
installed those apps that block websites on your laptop and phone. Like um, mm-hmm. I haven't been logging on to Facebook and Twitter hardly at all these days. Um, yeah. I think I've exhausted my ability to. <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm going to have to take a step back from Twitter because I just, yeah. I thought I could handle it and I can't, <laughs> I can't handle Twitter. So I'm just going to like, take I, I might, I'll just take a step back from that anthro podcast Twitter and then I need to make a gymnastics Twitter because I, and Amy Anderson called me out on this and I love her for it. She's like, Gabby, half of your that anthro podcast Twitter is anthropology and the other half is NCAA gymnastics and I'm like yep I know those are my two personalities those are my two interests yeah (laughs) and and the Twitter algorithm has knows how to target (laughs) how to target those two interests indeed yeah so it's always really fun for me to end the podcast just by learning a bit more about you know the person behind the research and what you know what what keeps you going on a day to day basis. <laughs> so what are what are some of your hobbies outside of anthropology? Mm, yeah, um, but I don't know. Throughout my life, I've pretty much had two main hobbies, um, which is basically martial arts and then music. Um, so the former has been a bit difficult during the pandemic. I had to take a bit of time off from jujitsu classes because that's very up close and personal yeah. sort of hobby. <laughs> it's a, it's a weird feeling, you know, training jujitsu in a limited capacity during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been trying to play a bit more music too. Um, you know, I'd, I took piano lessons from the age of you know, seven or something and have kept playing music since then in various ways guitar and bass and things mm-hmm. like that played in some rock bands when I was younger and That's through fun. college um so I've been dabbling in that but I haven't played music with people in mm. quite some time <laughs> music is such a, such a great outlet I know for me dance is like the outlet that I know music is for some people um yeah, yeah just a really great way to express yourself yeah absolutely yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about is what you're currently reading or watching or listening to like podcast wise that you think our listeners might enjoy. I might enjoy because I'm always looking for recommendations. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not a huge podcast person, so I don't listen to too many different podcasts, but um what I've been watching is actually the last season of The Expanse, which is a pretty good sci-fi show that's on uh, Amazon Prime. And I've actually been reading the books that that series is based on too. Um, and I would definitely recommend that to pretty much anybody. It's a really neat, um, yeah, it's a neat sci-fi series um, looking at you know the future of our solar system in a couple hundred years. Um, but you know, as an anthropologist, an archaeologist, and ecologist. Um, it's sci-fi is one of those things where it's interesting seeing how people imagine you know the future and all of these social processes and ecological processes that I'm studying in the past Um, and so you know hearing about you know colonization of the solar system and how the economic systems work and the political systems and the ecology of all of it you know something I don't know I have a bad habit of trying to inject my research into everything that I think and do and this is definitely one of those cases but it's a fun way to do it (laughs) yeah I don't know if it's necessarily a terrible habit because it helped it probably helps you think about your research questions in new ways yeah I'm just an obsessive academic when it comes down to it (laughs) yeah well um thank you so much for talking with 
me today. I'm really appreciative of your time and thank you for yeah. sharing, you know, your work with the world. I definitely will have um, as much as I can linked below if people want to further read your work or, you know, check out that Sapiens piece um, yeah. and that book that you were discussing in the beginning. I'll try and find um, a link to that as well. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. This has really been uh, a great conversation. I appreciate it.